Hello and welcome to this podcast tour of the Imperial War Museum brought to you by the First World War Poetry Digital Archive Project from Oxford University. The aim of this podcast is to guide you around some of the exhibits at London's Imperial War Museum related to the First World War and linked to the poetry that appeared during the conflict. This podcast is designed to be used whilst you are visiting the Imperial War Museum. London's Imperial War Museum is situated in the old Bedlam Hospital on the Lambeth Road. It was founded in 1917 during the First World War to to collect together material related to the conflict, which was still going on. It moved to its present location in 1936. We will begin this tour in the main gallery of the museum. This houses larger exhibits such as planes, tanks, artillery guns and so on. Pause the podcast until you are there. Go through the main hall to the stairs ahead of you and follow these down to signs for the First World War and the trench experience. You should find yourself in a large red corridor with a clock at the end. Go to the end of the corridor and take the door to the left into the First World War. The first sign you will see is entitled Sarajevo, the spark that set Europe ablaze. On the 28th of June 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, was assassinated along with his wife in Sarajevo by Serbian nationalists. It was to be the catalyst for a series of war declarations by the major European empires, including the British Empire. Follow the corridor to the left to see information on the origins and outbreak of the war, mobilisation and recruitment. Franz Ferdinand's assassination was merely the spark that set the world alight. As the sign says, Germany's expansionist plans, national, economic, colonial and naval rivalries and the growth of the opposing alliance systems were its deeper underlying causes. You will also see a map of the opposing alliances, with the Allies in red and the Central Powers in brown. At the outbreak of the war there was a rush to join the armed forces to do one's bit and also a recognition of the need to encourage young men to take up arms. Britain was no exception to this. But what was the reaction in the poetry of the time? It is often common to consider the poetry of Rupert Brooke as indicative of the euphoria that surrounded the outbreak of war. Brooke was born in 1887 at Rugby where his father was a housemaster and after school studied at King's College, Cambridge. Brooke was already a promising young poet when Brinton entered the war the day after his 27th birthday, and his war poetry, though some would argue the term, centres on a series of five sonnets which now seem drawn from a romantic idealism that jars with our perception of the First World War. Yet in his defence, Brooke only really saw one day of action at Antwerp, before he died of blood poisoning on Easter Sunday 1915 on his way to the battles at Gallipoli. It is a matter of some debate as to whether his views would have changed if he had been exposed to the horror of the frontline warfare for any length of time. The following sonnet, Peace, written in 1914, is part of the five-sonnet cycle he is most famous for. Now God be thanked who has matched us with his hour, and caught our youth, and wakened us from sleeping, with hand made sure, clear eye, and sharpened power, to turn as swimmers into cleanness, leaping, Glad from a world grown old and cold and weary, leave the sick hearts that honour could not move, 
and half-men and their dirty songs and dreary and all the little emptiness of love. Oh, we who have known shame, we have found release there, where there's no ill, no grief, but sleep has mending, naught broken save this body, lost but breath, nothing to shake the laughing heart's long peace there, but only agony, and that has ending, and the worst friend and enemy is but death. It would be wrong, however, to say that Brooke was entirely representative. A glimpse of an alternative viewpoint, more in tune with the reality of the situation, can be found in the poems of Charles Hamilton Sorley. Sorley was born in Aberdeen in 1895, the older twin son of a professor at the university there. He later attended Marlborough School and had travelled to Germany before the war started. He was deeply divided in his attitude to the war, but he did enlist immediately at the outbreak joining the 7th Battalion of the Suffolk Regiment. He arrived in France with his battalion on the 30th of May 1915, but was killed by a sniper on the 13th of October during the Battle of Luz. He had previously told his mother, I do wish people would not deceive themselves by talk of a just war. There is no such thing as a just war. To Germany by Charles Hamilton Sorley You are blind like us. Your hurt no man designed, and no man claimed the conquest of your land. But gropers both through fields of thought confined, we stumble and we do not understand. You only saw your future bigly planned, and we, the tapering paths of our own mind, and in each other's dearest ways we stand, and hiss and hate, and the blind fight the blind. When it is peace, then we may view again, with new one eyes each other's truer form and wonder, grown more loving kind and warm, will grasp firm hands and laugh at the old pain when it is peace. But until peace, the storm, the darkness and the thunder and the rain. We are now ready to look at the major area of conflict experienced by many of the British war poets, the Western Front. This has now become symbolic of the whole conflict, and the next few rooms will take you through its history and context. The Western Front was the major series of battles fought between 1914 and 1918 on the front line to the west of Germany involving many nations. It began as a war of mobility, but by the end of 1914 a line of trenches stretched from the Swiss border to the Channel Coast. Despite the loss of millions of lives, the front remained relatively stationary until the renewed mobility in 1918. The experiences of trench warfare were to influence many of the poets who fought there, such as Wilfred Owen, Robert Graves, Siegfried Sassoon, and Isaac Rosenberg. Proceeding to the galleries marked the Western Front. The first few exhibits take you through the creation of the Western Front, some of the equipment used in the major battles. Look at the exhibits and read about the battles of Neuve-Chapelle, Verdun, Ypres, Luz, the Somme, Arras, Passchendaele, Cambrai, and ultimately the final victory. Pause the podcast until you have read these. Edmund Blundham was born in London in 1896 and attended Cleves Grammar School and then Christ's Hospital School. In August 1915, Blundham was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Royal Sussex Regiment. Early in 1916, he was sent to Flanders, where he saw violent action in the trenches and on the battlefield, and was awarded the Military Cross. Blundham survived the war, going on to become a lecturer at Oxford. In 1928, he published his Recollections of the Western Front in Undertones of War, and he died in 1974. 
Blondin fought at the Battle of the Somme in 1916 and also the Third Battle of Ypres, or the Battle of Passchendaele as it is more commonly known, in 1917. The two largest offences, and in many ways the most disastrous that the British Army ever undertook. At the end of Undertones of War, he attempted to capture his experiences at Passchendaele in his poem Third Ypres. Here is a selection from that poem. At the noon of the dreadful day, our trench and deaths is on a sudden stormed with huge and shattering salvos. The clay dances in founts of clods around the concrete styes, where still the brain devises some last armour to live out the poor limbs. This wrath uncoming found four of us together in a pillbox, skirting the abyss of madness with light phrases, white and blinking in false smiles grimacing. The demon grins to see the game a moment passes, and still the drum-tap dongs my brain to a whirring void. Through the great breach above me the light comes in with icy shock, and the rain horribly drips. Doctor, talk, talk. If dead or stunned, I know not. The stinking powdered concrete, the lidite turns me sick. My hair's all full of this smashed concrete. Oh, I'll drag you, friends, out of the sepulchre into the light of day, for this is day, the pure and sacred day. And while I squeak and gibber over you, look from the wreck a score of field mice, nimble and tame and curious look about them. These calmed me, on these depended my salvation. There comes my sergeant, and by all the powers the wire is holding to the right battalion, and I can speak, but I myself first spoken, hear a known voice now measured even to madness, call me by name. For God's sake, send and help us, here in a gun pit, all headquarters done for, forty or more, the nine-inch came right through and splashed with arms and legs, and I myself, the only one not killed nor even wounded, you'll send, God bless you. At the end of the corridor is a major display of some of the weapons used and developed for the unique fighting experience of the trenches. The poem you're about to hear, The Kiss by Siegfried Sassoon, presents a romantic parody of the weapons of war. Sassoon was born on the 8th of September 1886 and educated at Marlborough College, like Charles Hamilton Sawley. He also attended Cambridge University, though he did not graduate. Sassoon is one of the most widely read poets of the First World War and in many ways the most influential. He enlisted at the outbreak of war and in 1915 went to France under a commission with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the same regiment as Robert Graves, who he befriended. His initial enthusiasm for the war turned to unbridled cynicism and anger, especially after the Battle of the Somme, and the poems he produced at that time were scathing attacks on the conduct of the war. Wounded in 1917, whilst convalescing in England, he issued his public and famous declaration against the war, which we will see later on in the tour. But instead of being court-martialed, he was diagnosed as suffering from shell shock and sent to Craig Lockhart War Hospital in Edinburgh, where he met a fellow patient, Wilfred Owen. Sassoon's influence on the development of Owen's poetry was considerable, urging his friend to write about his experiences on the Western Front. Sassoon survived the war, but never forgot his experiences there. He died in 1967. To these I turn, in these I trust, brother lead and sister steel. To his blind power I make appeal, I guard her beauty clean of rust. He spins and burns and loves the air, 
and splits a skull to win my praise. But up the nobly marching days, she glitters naked, cold and fair. Sweet sister, grant your soldier this, that in good fury he may feel the body where he sets his heel quail from your downward darting kiss. To the right of the exhibition of weapons of warfare is a display devoted to one particular weapon that emerged during the war, poison gas. Although fatalities from gas during the war were relatively low, certainly compared with artillery for example, it was despised and feared by soldiers in equal measure. In 1914 the French used tear gas against German troops, but on the 22nd of April 1915 the Germans used the first killing gas, chlorine, against the Allies at Ypres. The first use of gas by the British Army was only five months later at the Battle of Luz. As the war progressed, more effective gases were produced, but so was the protection in the form of gas masks. The poem we are about to hear, Dolce Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen, describes the results of a gas attack. Perhaps the most famous British poet of World War I is Wilfred Owen. Owen was born on the 18th of March 1893 in Oswestry, Shropshire. He was educated at the Birkenhead Institute and then continued at the Technical School in Shrewsbury. After failing to attain entrance to the University of London, he spent a year as a lay assistant to the Reverend Herbert Wigan at Dunstan before leaving for Bordeaux, France to teach at the Berlitz School of English. He returned to England in September 1915 to enlist in the Artist Rifles a month later. He received his commission to the Manchester Regiment, 5th Battalion, in June 1916, and in January he was posted to France and saw his first action, in which he and his men were forced to hold a flooded dugout in no man's land for 50 hours, whilst under heavy bombardment. In March he was injured with concussion, but returned to the front line in April. In 1917, Sassoon was invalided home with shell shock, and was sent to the Craig Lockhart War Hospital in Edinburgh, where he met Siegfried Sassoon. This was a changing point in Owen's poetical career, and Sassoon greatly influenced him, and urged him to write about his experiences in the trenches. After a prolific period in early 1918, when most of Owen's famous poetry emerges, Owen was sent back to the front line. He died trying to cross the Sombra Canal in an attack on German heavily defended positions on the 4th of November 1918, one week before the armistice. The telegram notifying his parents of his death arrived on the 11th of November, as the bells were ringing at the declaration of peace. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began the trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes, and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too 
could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gurgling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend you would not tell with such high zest, to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulci et decorum est pro patria more. Another aspect of trench warfare was the dreaded trench raid, in which small squads were sent out into no man's land at night to reconnoitre enemy positions, or to capture prisoners for interrogation. These were tense affairs and often resulted in severe hand-to-hand -hand fighting. In the cabinet towards the centre, and opposite to display of gas warfare, are weapons the soldiers would have used in trench raids. Pause the podcast until you have looked at all the exhibits. The popular image of the horror of war represented by Owen and Sassoon is perhaps not representative of the true attitude of the fighting man. Most soldiers' memoirs indicate a sense of camaraderie, a willingness to see things through, and occasionally a sense of enjoyment. One such example can be found in the famous poem Into Battle by Julian Grenfell. Grenfell was born in London on the 30th of March 1888. He was educated at Eton and at Balliol College, Oxford. He was already in the army at the outbreak of war, serving in the Royal Dragoons, and saw action on the Western Front in 1914, stating, It is all the best fun. I have never felt so well, or so happy, or enjoyed anything so much. He was renowned for his bravery, especially during trench raids. But on the 13th of May 1915, Grenfell was seriously wounded by a shell splinter, and he died in the military hospital in Boulogne on the 26th of May. The next day, Into Battle was published in the Times. Into Battle. The naked earth is warm with spring, and with green grass and bursting trees leans to the sun's gaze glorying and quivers in the sunny breeze. And life is colour and warmth and light, and a striving evermore for these, and he is dead who will not fight, and who dies fighting has increase. The fighting man shall from the sun take warmth, and life from the glowing earth, speed with the light foot, winds to run, and with the trees to newer birth, and find when fighting shall be done great rest and fullness after dearth. All the bright company of heaven hold him in their high comradeship, the dog star and the sister's seven, Orion's belt and the sordid hip. The woodland trees that stand together, they stand to him, each one a friend. They gently speak in the windy weather, they guide to valley and ridge's end. The kestrel hovering by day, and the little owls that call by night, bid him be swift and keen as they, as keen of ear as swift of sight. The blackbird sings to him, Brother, brother, if this be the last song you shall sing, sing well, for you may not sing another. Brother, sing. In dreary, doubtful waiting hours, before the brazen frenzy starts, the horses show him nobler powers, O patient eyes, courageous hearts. And when the burning moment breaks, and all things else are out of mind, and only joy of battle takes him by the throat, and makes him blind, through joy and blindness he shall know, not caring much to know that still nor lead nor steel shall reach him, so that it be not the destined will. The thundering line of battle stands, and in the air death moans and sings, but day shall clasp him with strong hands, and night shall fold him in soft wings. 
Now move into the slightly larger room with a large glass display cabinet in the middle. On the wall to the left is a film showing scenes from the trenches. On the wall opposite are directional signs used in the trenches, a curious mixture of real place names such as Posier, but also titles given to individual trenches by soldiers recalling their homes, such as Petticoat Lane and Tapnam Corner, and finally names that revealed the gallows humour of the soldiers such as Death Valley and Suicide Corner. Look at the large glass case in the centre of the room with a model of the trenches. From this bird's eye view you can see the zigzag shape of the trenches, the communication trenches linking back to the support trenches, and of course no man's land, the space between the frontline trenches. Study the model and pause the podcast until you are finished. Now move to the display on medical facilities in the corner of the room and examine the exhibits there. Like many women, Vera Britton, who was born in 1893 in Staffordshire, served as a voluntary aid detachment nurse or VAD during the war. She served at the military hospital in Etarp during the war, but it is her autobiography, Testament of Youth, published in 1933, that she is best known for. Based on her diaries, this tells of her war experiences, and in particular the loss of her fiancé Roland Layton, her brother Edward, and her friends Victor Richardson and Geoffrey Thurlow. Britain also wrote poetry, most notably verses of Avad, in 1918. Here is her poem, The German Ward. When the years of strife are over, and my recollection fades off the wards wherein I worked the weeks away, I shall still see, as a vision rising mid the wartime shades, the ward in France where German wounded lay. I shall see the pallid faces, and the half-suspicious eyes. I shall hear the bitter groans and laboured breath, and recall the loud complaining and weary tedious cries, and sights and smells of blood and wounds and death. I shall see the convoy cases, blanket-covered, on the floor, and watch the heavy stretcher work begin, and the gleam of knives and bottles through the open theatre door, and the operation patients carried in. I shall see the sister standing, with her form of youthful grace, and the humour and the wisdom of her smile, and the tale of three years' warfare on her thin expressive face, the weariness of many a tall field while. I shall think of how I worked for her, with nerve and heart and mind, and marvelled at her courage of her skill, and how the dying enemy her tenderness would find beneath her scornful energy of will. And I learnt that human mercy turns alike to friend or foe, when the darkest hour of all is creeping nigh, and those who slew our dearest, when their lamps were burning low, found help and pity ere they came to die. So though much will be forgotten, when the sound of war's alarms, and the days of death and strife have passed away, I shall always see the vision of love working at Miss Starnes, in the ward wherein the wounded prisoners lay. Through the doorway immediately to the right of the display on medical facilities is a small room, half of which is devoted to the artists and poets of the First World War. There are numerous items on display here of interest. Item 5, for example, is a letter from Rupert Brooke to Walter de la Mare outlining his reactions to the German invasions of 1914. Item 6 is a letter from the poet and novelist Robert Graves explaining the reasons why he enlisted in 1914. Graves is also famous for his savage autobiography recalling his experiences before, during and after the war, entitled Goodbye to All That. Item 7 is a letter from John Macefield, the poet and novelist, to his wife, dated 1916, describing conditions on the Somme battlefront.
Items 10 to 13 focus on the poet Isaac Rosenberg, who we shall hear about more in the second podcast tour. Rosenberg was a private during the war and was killed by a sniper on April 1st, 1918. Here we have two self-portraits by him and a draft of one of his most famous poems, Break a Day in the Trenches, from 1916, complete with alterations. We also have his memorial plaque. Items 14 to 16 relate to Siegfried Sassoon. In 1917, angered by what he saw as a needless prolonging of the war, he declared his opposition to the conflict by publishing and circulating a letter of protest. In this he stated, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority because I believe that the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. Instead of court-martialing him, the army, in part persuaded by Sassoon's close friend Robert Graves, diagnosed shell shock and sent him to the military hospital of Craig Lockhart. Item 14 is the medical report on Sassoon, and we can see in the second paragraph the board stated, From an early stage of his service in France, he had been horrified by the slaughter and had come to doubt whether the continuance of the war was justifiable. Item 15 is a letter by Sassoon from Craig Lockhart, where of course he met Wilfred Owen, And after the war, Sassoon published his memoirs in a fictional trilogy based around the semi-autobiographical character of George Sherston. And item 16 is an original typescript of the first book in the series. Once you have finished looking at the exhibits, exit by the far door. This is the end of this podcast, but a second one is available which will take you through the trench experience and the other theatres of the war. 